Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today is our conversation with Mr. Mark Thorpe, who was an ILM model maker for movies like Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. I really enjoyed my conversation with him, especially learning what exactly an Ewok Wrangler is. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 33, Mark Thorpe. All right, today we are joined by Mr. Mark Thorpe, who was an ILMer, model maker for both Empire and Jedi, um, as well as working on the Indiana Jones movies and even inventing Robot Wars. Uh, Mr. Thorpe, thank you so much for taking the time today. You're welcome. Uh, before we even dive into ILM and Lucasfilm, what um, were your first inspirations, especially when it came to model making? What kind of training and, and schooling did you do to prepare yourself? Well, I really had none as far as model making goes. I made crude models as a kid. They were really floppy and crude. I didn't really understand the techniques that, that could be employed for making models. I was, my background is more in fine arts and sculpture. But I'm a very good craftsman, so that, 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 that has developed over my years in undergraduate and graduate school, and by the time that I ended up making models, I was, I was, I was a quick learner, and I, I was very, very skilled, so it, it made up for my sloppy childhood models. I know uh, your early work was kind of performance art, even. I, uh, I was reading about the, the dolphin work that you were doing, as well as just various other pieces of performance art. What kind of inspired that, and kind of how did you keep that momentum going? That was a product of my, actually my skill as a, as a sculptor. I was, I, my work is highly crafted and I thought that it was, it was lack vulnerability. And so I was challenged as a grad student to do, to do something that made myself more vulnerable. And so I came, came up with some performances that involved animals. It, did, it, is, it, it, is, it is extremely vulnerable situation to be in. <laughs> uh-huh. We have a live audience. And uh, it's scary. I like that part of it. When you first saw Star Wars, especially, because that was before you had joined ILM, what was your thinking there? And then did that prompt your then involvement with Industrial Light and Magic? Well, indirectly. I remember I was amazed by it, like everybody else. And when we, I went with my, my former wife and a close friend of mine, who also worked as ILM, Evan Stromquist. Uh, we, we saw it at the Coronet Theater on Geary Street in San Francisco. And when we came out of there, I said, where in the world did they find these buildings big enough to build these models? And I, had no, I had no concept that they were scale. And so uh, the way I ended up working at ILM was I heard that, that they were looking, they just moved up from Los Angeles to San Rafael and were looking for model makers. So I sent my photos of my work into them. And Lauren Peterson, who was the department head, looked at the work and gave me a call. And he, he, had, he had in mind a sequence in Empire Strikes Back in Cloud City that was, that was sort of reflective of my, my sculpture. And so he thought that was appropriate. And so they hired me for two weeks. Two weeks turned into about 15 years. I guess let's start with Empire. So you mentioned Cloud City. What was your work um, specifically on Bespin? Well, I made the buildings, the ones that, 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 are, that are interesting and close up, and they don't look like aerosol cans. Paintings are not that, <laughs> you know, so you can, you can see that I can't, it's hard to describe them verbally. Right. 
I think everyone listening knows which ones you're t- which ones you're talking about. Uh, what was the process like taking it from kind of that concept art to? Well, there's all kinds of materials, and I used a lot of tubing that I cut it cut up, and I also had learned to machine by that point, so I would machine grooves. And there are certain certain Star Wars like design elements that are that are common to those to that 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 aesthetic. And I I use those to make repetitive grooves and slots and what would you might consider to be vents or something like that. And I I did a lot of vacuforming, thermoforming, and uh, a lot of repetitive tubing. It's 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 hard to describe verbally. <laughs> well, with with Empire especially, and you were kind of mentioning, so with you also worked on the the iconic now tie bomber. What was that process like taking, let's say, a concept art piece from maybe Joe Johnston and then turning it into something physical and real and something that could exist in that universe? Well, Joe, Joe was wonderful in his, in his generosity design-wise. He, he knew what the model shop was capable of, and so he didn't go to a lot of trouble often to detail the, the drawings. So there was a lot, lot, lot of interpretation which remained after, after looking at his drawings. I took advantage of that as much as possible, but I also was very, very careful to cut, to ask his opinion at various stages. And he was, his comments were always right on. They were, it was, he was un, unfailing in his, in his good judgment of design wise. But uh, that was a situation where I had finished doing something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I went up to Lauren and I said, well, what do you want me to do now? <laughs> and he, he pulled this thing down off the shelf, which was something which had been started much earlier, so it had two two wings, two tie fighter wings, and two two cylinders, which formed the basis of the model. He said, "Here, <laughs> do this," <laughs> and I, I I was just just enthralled with it. I stayed I stayed after work. They're normally ten hour days, so fifteen hours a week, normal. And I stayed after work. And it, you know, saw no point in going home, <laughs> and no no extra pay. I worked on the model incessantly. I remember one one evening was I was delighted when Ken Ralston came and got me to to help them with their with shot on the stage because they were they were the night crew. He brought he talked me took me over to the computer and said when we said when we when we prompt you push these two buttons. <laughs> There's the most control system. Right. And so I did that and I was delighted by that. With you were kind of mentioning the feedback process, right? You had feedback from the creator of the model, Joe Johnston, um, but then you also had feedback i'm sure from lucas or Irvin kirshner or whoever it was what was that involvement like did they ever come down to the model shop was it interacting with just like kind of like joe johnson maybe like nilo or what was the what was the feedback process like well george would george would come into the model shop you know not regularly but frequently right and he would mostly just look at what we had done and his comment was almost universally great that was his comment you know, sometimes he would he would have some suggestions, but usually he was just very pleased. We we it was an excellent group of people. Everybody everybody really knew what they were doing. It was it was astonishing actually. So he he was he was right. And the and the, the sketches, the designs were fantastic. Joe and Nilo really were fantastic art directors. With the move then from Empire to Return of the Jedi, what was the learnings you picked up from? working on a Star Wars movie, and then which designs did you really have a hand in um, turning into, like, physical models for, for Jedi? Well, for Jedi, 
I did a lot of work on the tunnels, the Death Star tunnels and the Death Star surfaces. There were various altitudes that the Death Star was viewed from. So I, I, I everything from a, a photographic collage on a curved, big curved surface, which was a high altitude view of the Death Star, to a close-up, relatively close-up view of the Death Star with lots of detail. So I worked on a lot of those shots. And also the tunnels. There were three tunnels that, that they, they escaped from at the end of the movie. There was one with mirrors and very structural members. There was one I, one I supervised, which was the one where, where they, they, the camera actually flies into the, into the tunnel. And these panels are pulled away to, to, to avoid the camera hitting them. That's where it's got kind of a trapezoidal shape. There was a lot of, lot of molding and casting. I made a made a pattern for, for one of the Death Star services that was machined with, well, it's a technical, but there was a 10-degree taper on the, on the end mill. So I could, I could create draft with a vacuum form. So I could, I could make hundreds of panels, pieces that were, that were thermoformed. So the plastic would come off the mold really easily. And those were painted and glued onto the surface along with miniature towers, gun towers, and all kinds of things like that. But the, one of the interesting things about that shot was they put some black goods over the above the surface, which is about four feet above the surface. Black goods is like heavy velvet curtains, but black. Mm-hmm. And they they there was going to be a there was where Darth crashes into the Death Star, Darth Darth Vader's ship, mm-hmm. and so they created some pyro, some some explosions in the in the in a hole that was underneath the table underneath the, the, the supports and they think it was the, they could they could do all kinds of different fires you know different temperatures different speeds different brightnesses they had a lot of control over the pyrotechnics and this one was where the, where the, the flames would come up and they would hit the black plastic and not burn them but billow out horizontally so they said you had to stand by the side of the camera off camera with with a fire extinguisher, so I could go and repair it after because we usually do more than one take. And so they said, "Don't stand up, or you'll be in the shot." And I, I said, "I said, okay, I trusted them." And they, but, but my instincts were such that when, when they when they lit that thing off, they fired that thing off, the flames came billowing out towards me, and I <laughs> immediately stood up. <laughs> Probably wrecked the shot, but I don't know. They, we eventually got it. I read that you also contributed to the physical models of the Endor bunker on set near Oregon. What was that process like? No, I didn't. I didn't. I was the kind of an Ewok Wrangler. I didn't work on that structure. I don't know who made that structure. It was there by the time I got there, and it was also a big two-legged walker. And, and I, I don't know who made those things. But I, I basically worked with the little people and their their Ewok costumes. Uh huh. What was that process like being an Ewok Wrangler? What was what was the the main conceit there? Well, we'd have to repair their 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 feet because it was foam latex, and it would and the, the perspiration would cause the, the foam latex to separate from the from the, the structure that was holding it. So there was a lot of repairs to that at the end of the day. And during the during the shoot shooting, we had we had blow dryers with the heating element removed. And we put the blow dryer in the in the mouth of the Ewok or or in down the, the torso to cool these people off because it was extremely exhausting and 
hot to be in the up in the up there. I think it was during the summer in those costumes, which are about two inches thick with rubber and fur. And sometimes it was brutal. You know, the, typically with shooting, they say, "Okay, we're ready, heads on." Then, then they they say, "Well, wait a minute, we got to just adjust this light, and adjust that, adjust this, this reflector." You know, kind of technical things they do to adjust the lighting, and and kind of the clock would be ticking, and people would be would be would be really uncomfortable, and we'd have to you know, yell at them, you know, heads off, you know, they'd cool down a little <laughs> bit, and heads back on. With the end of the trilogy wrapping up, um, what other work did you do with ILM? I know that you contributed a lot to the models and special effects for the Indiana Jones trilogy, especially. What were some of your favorite um, moments and elements that you participated on? My favorite shot was one on, on Raiders of Lost Ark, where I was Chris Wales' assistant. Mm-hmm. I've never done anything like that before. Same no makeup work. And uh, it was a shot. There were two shots that particularly were fun. And one was where the guy, the, the one character shrivels up, his head shrivels, and fluids gush out of him. That was when we had Hudson sprayers and other kinds of fluid pumping devices, syringes and things loaded with what would simulate blood and mucus and other things like that. And we had it, we had it all set up. The camera was right on top of it. People were, all the stage hands were standing, were, were nearby. It was real crowded. And they say, okay, this is our first first take. <laughs> Roll camera, <laughs> action. And then, you know, there's a pause and there's like a, like a universal, oh, where everybody gets <laughs> with, with blood and pus. And that was, that was, then there was a melting head, which was also fun. Melting head had, had an error in it, which most people don't, don't recognize. As it, was shot, it was shot under cranks, which was that it was shot like eight frames per second. And so motion becomes very apparent, very, very, it's like a, it jumps. Mm-hmm. And his eyeglasses were not controlled. So if you notice in that shot, the eyeglasses drop down very quickly from the, from the melting, which is not, not supporting the glasses anymore longer. Then there was Don, what was called Donovan's Destruction, which would have been the last crusade. Right. Where the guy is from the wrong grail. Yeah, so we made, there was a quite an elaborate puppet that we made for that shot. It involved controlling his torso with motion control and, and having the features be radio controlled in his face. And we had things like his teeth came out, his, uh, his head shriveled up, his eyeballs rolled back, or his torso you know, rides around in a, in a, in a repeatable manner. Quite sophisticated. I also worked on the water tunnel. That was, I think, from the second indie movie, Temple of Doom. They're they're in the mine. They're in mine cars, traveling through the right. Yeah, and so I worked on that a lot, putting miniature lights in in the tunnel and doing things like that. Well, after you know, you worked on indie. You worked on Star Wars. I know you worked on like Batteries Not Included, and I think even the Explorers. Like just huge, just incredible special effects driven movies. What I'm interested to hear about is your work on Lucas Toys, which is not really a division that I've heard much about. I'd love for you to explain a little bit about your work on it and also what, what that process was like. Well, Lucas Toys was a partnership between Mattel Toys and Lucasfilm. The idea was that Mattel would put up the, an advance against royalties, against, against future royalties. So in other mm-hmm. words, they, they put up some money for us to work with, 
and they would recoup that money from from future royalties they get from toy sales mm-hmm. that we would that we would earn from designing toys. It's a Blue Sky Group. We weren't doing Lucasfilm licensing toys, although we were under the auspices of Lucasfilm licensing. But they were, they didn't have to do with the movies. They were just independent ideas that we came up with, and so that that worked out pretty well for a while. We did some interesting had some interesting toy designs, uh, but. Mattel kept it was, a, it was a big corporation, and they kept changing their design directors. They kept they would hire a new design director, and he would want to to redesign this toy that we we were working on all for this long period of time. Uh, so we, George was was happy with the with the concept with the with the design, and Mattel was happy with it. But they, they kept changing their they say the design director. And the new, new the new director would want to have his fingerprints on it, so he would redesign the toy. And so so that would put it off for another year. And eventually, George got tired of it, and so we, 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 that that lasted about three years. That's very interesting. Yeah, that's that's not a part that of Lucas that you you hear very often. The thing that got me even the most excited on your resume was Robot Wars, which was huge. Uh, what was that experience like first? concepting it and then kind of helping it come into fruition. There's a long story. There's a book that's written about it called Gear, Gearheads, The Turbulent Rise of Robotic Sports by Brad Stone, published by Simon & Schuster. Such a, such a complex story that that's that warranted a book. But essentially, <laughs> I came up with that idea as a toy concept. It was, I, think it was, I think I just guessed and it was called Danger Zone. <laughs> And I had, I had vehicles with hammers and saws on them and that sort of thing. And we had this meeting with the head of Tot Wheels. This is their Lucas toys. And uh, I came up with the concept of Rock around 1992. And so we were preparing for this this meeting with Hot Wheels. And we had about 30 concepts. And the guy looked at them. He looked at all of them. And we talked about most of them. And but mine, he just sort of, he just sort of glossed over. He said, Someday somebody's gonna figure out how to do this. I remember that. <laughs> I mean, meanwhile, I had I had made a, a tank for an invention idea, which is radio-controlled vacuum cleaner. The idea is to make vacuuming fun. And so I, I tried. I showed that to a few people, and it just didn't make any sense because there's no way you can vacuum your, your house with a dust bus. This is just this is crazy. So so I gave up on that, and I had this tank that I made. And I thought, what if I put some radio control toy, you know, power tools on it? I can, I can, I can eat my way through a wall with it. And I thought that was fun. And my next thought would be, be was, I know how to do that toy. And so I'll, I'll start an event and I'll invite other people to participate. That's how that started. Then I partnered with a medium-sized record company owner in New York, and my problems began, but they were. We were forestalled by about four years of excellent. excellent <laughs> so now, after this illustrious career, what are you working on now? What 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 keeps you busy? What keeps you excited to continue to to work on things? Well, I did. I had an art show last year. I made some some wall wall pieces, mostly wood, painted, and uh, that's pretty much what I've been doing. I'm somewhat disabled because I have Parkinson's disease. So that, that limits my ability to do things. 
Well, Mr. Thorpe, I really appreciate you taking the time and talking and telling these stories, especially just the the craftsmanship that you brought to both Star Wars and and Indiana Jones. Um, So uh, I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Happy to talk to you. Thank you again to Mr. Thorpe for taking the time out of his weekend to talk to us. I really enjoyed hearing about the early days of ILM and especially the creation of Robot Wars. Check out his website, markthorpe.com, for more photos and information about the awesome work and art he's done. We do not have an episode next week, but we do have a small announcement coming, in addition to a lot of prep for some great, great interviews at Celebration. But anyway, until then, leave a five-star review and may the Force be with you. 